Today's scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 9, verse 18 to 27. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the Holy Angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is God's word. Very good morning to everyone. Uh, it's my privilege to be preaching God's word to you in your homes as I'm at my home uh, today. And uh, I had hoped that the 31st of May would actually be the last Sunday of the Circuit Breaker and that we would be permitted to gather again and worship as a church to see and to hear one another. But that's not the case. And although the authorities have laid out a three-phase plan for us to exit the Circuit Breaker, it's going to be a long time uh, before we return to our normalcy. And we miss the freedoms and the uh, fellowship that we enjoy uh, normally. And now we have to abide by these many rules, careful rules. We wear masks, we stay at home, and we refrain from visits. Uh, We've been asked to make many painful sacrifices, but for a greater good. That is what our authorities have asked of us, and as Christians, we understand the message of sacrifice well. Uh, Making personal sacrifices for others is literally at the heart of our faith. In fact, in an odd way, it is exactly what a cross-shaped religion looks like, and this uh, circuit breaker period, these safe distancing measures as we fight COVID-19 have been a good reminder of that. Visitors to our sanctuary will see the cross uh, right there at the back of the wall. Uh, Christians, especially our sisters, wear crucifixes and cross-shaped necklaces. The cross is in our logo. It identifies us as a church or as a group. In fact, the cross is used so positively and universally that we often forget how it became a symbol of positive sacrifice when it was a symbol of death and execution used in ancient Rome. And so today in our our time together as we look at Luke 9, we want to ask, how does the cross, according to Luke 9, how does the cross shape my living? And how does Jesus Christ 
call us to live by the cross. In Luke's Gospel, we've seen the introduction of Jesus Christ from his birth and baptism to the beginnings of his ministry in Judea of Galilee, and the central message of his teaching, the Kingdom of God. And throughout Galilee, as he's been uh, traveling, he preaches about the Kingdom, and he challenges and upturns the religious authorities of his time, because his Kingdom is not of this world and is unknown to the rulers of this world. Uh, last week, Pastor Eugene preached about Herod the Tetrarch, a subcontractor of the Roman Empire who actually executed Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. And he asked in Luke 9, verse 9, Who is this Jesus that I have heard so much about? The kingdom representatives of Jesus have been sent out proclaiming his kingdom and healing in Luke 9, verse 2, in the power of the Spirit. And when they return, Jesus shows that as the king, he has power to provide food and bread for 5,000 of his own, just like how God provided manna in the wilderness. So the king is on the rise, he's on the ascendancy. But now, in our text, this rising king wants his followers to know a paradigm-shifting truth, the cross, that will change all of their expectations of him and his kingdom. So let's jump right in under three big headers. The first the Christian confesses Christ. The significance of this important conversation may be why Jesus went to private prayer in verse 18. The text tells us that now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? Jesus often prays before important events in his life, and we see this in Luke 5 when he was preparing to call the first disciples, Luke 6 when he chooses the twelve, and even before, just right before the cross, he prays. And our Lord never neglected time to be alone with his Father in undistracted prayer and dependence, and neither should we as we prepare for significant moments uh, in our life. In fact, as we prepare to exit the circuit breaker, it's a reminder for us to turn in every moment to God in prayer. Uh, but on this occasion, the disciples join him, and Jesus talks to them about his identity. Verses 18b to 20, two questions are posed. He asks, who do the crowds say that I am? And who do you say that I am? It is like saying, what do other people say and what do you say? Do you think like other people or do you not? The hundreds and thousands of people who have had a faint distant glance of Jesus are compared or set against the disciples and the disciples now giving the answer to Jesus as they've eavesdropped from that 5,000-person uh, 5, meal, they'd say, the crowd say that Jesus is either John the Baptist, who was just executed by Herod, or Elijah, the famous Old Testament prophet, risen from the dead maybe, or yet another prophet of old. In summary, their answer is a theoretical guess at some prophet Israel has seen before. On the other hand, Peter, the first of the disciples to speak, confesses confidently Jesus is the Christ of God. The word Christ should always make us think of the Old Testament because that's where the choosing was done. That's where the anointing was done in the anointed one or the chosen one. And that's what Christ means. It means Messiah, chosen one. And we see that Peter has come so far from his uh, little realizations in earlier when we saw him in Luke chapter 5 from 
from knowing that Jesus was a teacher with authority uh, over a supernatural catch of fish, Jesus now, uh, P- Peter now can confidently say, you are the Christ of God. You are the one the Old Testament has promised. You are the Messiah of God. All this time with Jesus, observing and watching him, knowing him, engaging him, talking to him, had helped Peter see something crowds did not see. And how did Peter do this? Luke chapter 5, verse 11 says, The disciples left everything and followed Jesus. The Bible talks about discipleship in this way, that the disciples of Christ are those who leave everything behind to follow him. And they leave behind friends and family and profession in order to make Jesus their purpose and mission. And this shows us how Jesus becomes more to us than just a dusty ancient prophet. We too must put something down. We too must stop being one of the crowd with a theory about who Jesus is. We must even stop trying to come to Jesus just to get our bellies filled. We must come in close to him. Stop being part of the onlookers who are there because others are there or there to be entertained. And we take a step of commitment. That step opens us up to experience more of him and to know what he's really like. And so the disciple of Jesus seeks to know him, listening to his word, observing and focusing in on him, which we cannot do if our hearts are divided and cluttered with many things. Like weeds which choke out the seed in the soil, the cares and the worries of this life can swiftly choke out faith unless we leave them behind. And so the follower of Jesus Christ is the one able to answer this question, who do you say that I am? The Christ of God. Personal confession of Christ flows from personal following of Christ. Romans 10 verses 9 and 10 tell us that public confession of Christ is much more than just words. We we confess with our mouth, yes, but it is the firm, settled conclusion of the heart that knows Jesus personally and believes who Jesus is. We've settled it. And so we confess that Jesus alone is Lord and Christ with authority and power whom God put forward to die for sins and be raised from the dead for our salvation. Romans 9 verses 9 and 10 say, Romans 10 verses 9 and 10 say, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Friends, are you able to confess this about Jesus? Have you made Jesus your good confession? The church recently lost uh, a great apologist and evangelist, Ravi Zacharias, and in one of his uh, one of his best books, Jesus Among Other Gods, Ravi engages with uh, the major world religions and he argues that Jesus Christ is the only Savior who stands uniquely credible and that no one who confesses Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord will ever be put to shame. In the book, Ravi writes of his own confession of faith and he says, I came to him because I did not know which way to turn. 
I remained with him because there is no other way I wish to turn. I came to him longing for something I did not have. I remain with him because I have something I will not trade. Like Peter, like Ravi, Christians confess Christ with our lips and we believe on him in our hearts. We've settled it. Uh, in my former life uh, as an English teacher, I used to teach uh, my students a simple reading trick uh, to help us get into a story and to enjoy it more. And that's uh, simply to pause at a critical point in the story and instead of just rushing on, what happens next, what happens next, you look up and you ask yourself, so what do you think is going to happen next? It's a, it's a, good, it's a good trick. It's a good little tip, uh, reading techniques. And verse 21 in our text is actually a wonderful moment for that. What do you think is going to happen now that Peter has made this grand confession about who Jesus is? Jesus is utterly unpredictable when he says in verse 21, now keep it to yourself, make sure this news doesn't go out. Don't say a word. Verse 21, he says, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. And why does he do this? Doesn't Jesus want the press to go out? Doesn't he want free Marcom? Doesn't he want uh, more market share? No, the king is going to correct a major misunderstanding his disciples have. Their error was in thinking that the Christ would be the kind of king that they envisioned him to be. They had their own story of glory for Messiah. But in verses 21 and 22, Jesus says that the road the Christ takes is a different one. In fact, he insists that the Christ must suffer many things, including first, the rejection of the elders, the community leaders of Israel, the chief priests, the office holders, and the scribes, the religious academics, the full religious establishment must turn on Jesus and reject the Christ. And then, with that rejection, he must be killed, and third, after his death, be raised on the third day. This is not information that the disciples wanted to hear about Christ. The prophet Daniel in exile, while Israel was under captivity in Babylon, and then later on in Persia, is the first to use the term that Jesus quotes from. The title is, The Son of Man. Daniel describes the Son of Man as a divine figure, a glorious, national, God-like person, introduced at Israel's low point in exile. In the cloud of his vision, Daniel describes seeing this uh, this glorious son of man coming before God, the Ancient of Days, and he is given dominion and glory and a kingdom, which actually means he's going to rule. You remember what Jesus preached? The arrival of a kingdom. And the son of man will be served by all peoples, nations, and languages from the ends of the earth. Every culture and race and empire will serve him. But this son of man is exactly the phrase that Jesus uses to say, this is the Son of Man who must suffer many things. You see, the disciples don't understand that this victorious, divine, Daniel-prophesied Son of Man, according to Jesus, has a unique pathway that takes him before the Ancient of Days. And that pathway to glory leads to the cross before it leads to the crown. 
Luke chapter 9 shows Jesus marrying the idea of the glorious kingdom and the cross of suffering. And the Son of Man must suffer many things. In Luke 9, uh, this text is the first of three predictions that Jesus makes of his own suffering. The first of three passion predictions in the book. First here in Luke chapter 9, and then again later in Luke chapter 9, verse 43, and again in Luke 18, 31. And this cross message would have been utterly confusing because the Christ would never suffer, never be defeated, and never be killed. But Jesus' words are specific. The Christ must suffer. Some suggest that uh, when Jesus prays in Gethsemane that the cup of suffering pass him, he's actually hoping to, you know, maybe find a loophole and get around it. Luke chapter 9 says, Jesus was utterly convinced that the Christ must suffer, and he was utterly willing to bear it of his own free will. Sometimes the most profound truths are best expressed when we tell them to children. And after he became a Christian, uh, the Cambridge professor C.S. Lewis wrote a beautiful book for children entitled The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which I highly recommend if you've never read it, adult or child. Uh, in the book, Edmund is one of four children who finds a magical wardrobe into the world of Narnia, and the children are drawn into this fierce war between the lion, Aslan, who is Narnia's rightful king, and the white witch who wants to usurp and enslave all of Narnia and make it always winter and never Christmas. And she lures Edmund away from his siblings with promises of pleasure and sweets, and Edmund betrays Aslan and his siblings uh, and becomes a, a, a stooge of the witch. And he becomes a traitor and a slave to her. Well, later on, he's rescued by Aslan's forces, but the witch has a claim to his life. Because all traitors in Narnia are hers to rule by right. So at the climax of the story, there is a moment where in the quiet of the night, Aslan goes to the witch, he walks up to that great stone table where traitors are killed, and he offers himself to the witch in Edmund's place. He just lays down his power and might. And although he could have ripped his enemies apart, this great lion, he is bound with cords, he is mocked, spat on, and when the witch's forces shave his mane and muzzle him with ropes so that he is powerless, uh, every child's heart breaks. And my, my heart broke when I read it. And finally, when all his enemies laugh, the witch stabs him with a dagger, and he dies on the stone table in Edmund's place, setting him free. Uh, when I was a child, I read it, and, I, and, and this moment grabbed my heart. Why did Aslan die on that table? And the answer is he died there to get Edmund back. And my child's heart understood that analogy of faith. Why did Jesus die on the cross? To get me back. On that stone table, a picture of the cross, and Aslan, a picture of the Lord Jesus. The righteous gave his life for the unrighteous to win him back. And Christ Jesus died to make me his own. Jesus, knowing all that awaits him in Luke 9, looks ahead and says that the glorious Son of Man 
must suffer all these things. And in verse 51 of chapter 9, he says, uh, Luke tells us that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. With chapters and chapters still to go before the cross, Jesus not only foresaw his death, but set his face in commitment and determination to go to Jerusalem there. Can you see the commitment of Christ to the cross? It is so central. And no wonder Jesus wanted to help his disciples get it early and then repeat it three times. There is no such thing as a Christ who has no cross. The cross is central to who Christ is. Christians are called to make this message central to our lives. And the apostles hammer this point home relentlessly. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul makes this statement of his own commitment to make the cross the center of his life and ministry. In Galatians chapter 6 verse 14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul is saying that there is absolutely nothing in his life that he's going to boast in, to rejoice in, or to celebrate. Why? Because the cross means that the world is dead to me. The world is dead to me. And all that it has for me now is in that grave. There's nothing left in it for me, says Paul. Again, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that this news of death and resurrection is uh, this message of the cross is of first importance. There is simply nothing more important than this in all Christianity. This is why Christians must always, always keep the cross chief among our priorities. It is the news of first importance. Christian hymn writers sing of the glories of the cross. Writers like Lewis enshrine it in the climax of their stories. When we gather on the Lord's day, as one day we will, we will rehearse, as we have done online, the story of the cross. We will confess that at the cross we died with Jesus as he died for us. We celebrate his broken body and his spilled blood in the Lord's Supper. And we see the dying and the rising in water baptism. We pray in the name of the one mediator, Christ Jesus, because of his cross. We must make the cross the sole boast of our lives, our highest and most sacred thought. Friends, have you grown tired of the cross? Has this message of the sufferings of the Son of Man, has it stopped to thrill your heart? One way, one way that we can respond and to, and to restore its importance in our lives is simply to reflect on right now why I need it, why I still need it. What are the sins today that you have discovered Jesus shed his blood for? Have you realized that his death on the cross, once for all, you're still discovering the true meaning of? Christians who reflect on the cross reflect on their continual need for the cross. And then it's so shocking to us then 
uh, that it is not just uh, the, the, the disclosure of future information that Jesus gives to his disciples as if he was just revealing prophecy, but he actually says he, he invites them to come and bear the cross with him. To Peter and to those who have just made this great confession, in verse 23, Jesus actually invites them to come into the same sacrificial cross-shaped lifestyle. Verse 23 lays out the condition, if you come after me, if you come after me, anyone who would come after me is the condition that's laid out. And what, and what must they do? Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. This idea of Christians taking up the cross, not just keeping it central, but taking it up and bearing it, is so important that it appears in Matthew 10, Matthew 16, Mark 8, as well as here. To those who wish to be associated with Jesus, we don't just make a good confession, though we must. They too must embrace the central message, though we must. But they too must bear up the cross as the Master does. Well, what does this mean? Uh, this doesn't mean that you and I go and die again uh, in ancient Rome. Uh, but to the disciples at the time, the Roman context made it so simple. It just meant death. Jesus was giving an invitation to die. This is the central phrase that Christians for centuries have used to describe the way that we live, regardless of station in life, gender, circumstance, or any kind of uh, a distinction. The people of the cross bear up the cross. We live in self-denial. We say no to our fleshly, sinful selves. We say no to a life apart from Christ. We put our sinful desires and our straying affections, we put that to death. Or to use the theological term, this is the mortification of our sin. The killing of our sin. Christians must learn to daily put ourselves to death as we live to Christ. You notice that the instruction there is to take up the cross daily. It is a daily activity that we perform, a lifestyle that we enter into, a habit, not just a once-off moment of saying yes to Jesus and no to myself, but we are to literally say that every day of my life is a life now lived for Jesus and nothing else. What did I want to do before what did I want to do with my life before I met Jesus? What was my Jesus-free life? The Christian answers, It's dead. I don't remember. I don't know. Friends, this must be stressed. If the daily cross-bearing, putting self to death lifestyle is not a part of our habit, of our daily choice, verse 23 insists that we ask, then are you sure you're following the one who gave his life at the cross? Verses 24 to 26 give us even more clarity through the contrast that Jesus sets up. So either we try and save our lives now and eventually lose it, or we lose our lives for Jesus' sake and so save our lives. We die to what looks like life now for Jesus' sake, in order to gain true life later. 
two parallel statements make this even clearer. First, for those who live for the here and now, for today, for themselves, you may gain the world. But eventually what you lose is yourself. On the other hand, you live for Christ now, uh, you live for Christ now, and what you truly gain is your true life in Christ. Do you see what, uh, do you see how he says it in verse uh, 25? Uh, in verse 25, that if we are ashamed of Christ and his words, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in glory. Refusing to see the worthiness of the life Jesus calls us to is to turn our back on Jesus. It is being ashamed of him should we not choose to live in this cross-shaped way. Friends, these are hard and exclusive words in verses 24 and 26. And if you look at what Jesus is calling you to, uh, it, it's not easy at all. It means putting down your life, your agenda, your plans, your goals, your convenience and your comforts and losing everything that you have now just to gain Christ. Uh, and I struggled to think about this and I struggled how to make this practical, how to make this clear. And, and I struggled so hard because I struggled with my motives as I tried to explain. I, I tried to think, uh, how, how do I know? How do I know I'm really living for Christ and not just an extension of the life that I want to live and putting Jesus inside. How do I know? It's so hard to see. And it's so hard to see uh, in a church where there's so many different types of people. I mean, what does cross-shaped living, denying self, what does that look like for a young person starting work? Or, or someone who's trying to start a family? Or for a person at the peak of your career where everything is going well and time is just so limited? What does it mean for... Those of us who are in retirement, what does it mean for the, those of us struggling with life-threatening illness? Oh, friends, regardless of the life stage we are in, the question must be pressed into our face and into our hearts. If anyone would come after me, have they denied themselves, taken up their cross daily and followed Jesus? I wonder what choices you would say you've made in your life that have absolutely nothing to do with the Lord Jesus, His kingdom, and His gospel. What decisions and plans and expenditure have you entered into because it's your life? Oh, friends, those are the things that need to die. And because this is so hard, we desperately need Christian community to help us examine our hearts. 2 Corinthians 13.5 is an outright command from the Apostle Paul. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And then he ramps it up and he says, test yourselves. This is why we need each other in the church, to see if According to this rule of cross-shaped living, we are truly living for ourselves or, or for the Lord Jesus. This is what our CGs must be about. This is, must, this is what our interactions must be about, to help care for the true state of our souls. And by this standard, not to help each other gain the world and lose our souls. Friends, we must not allow our culture, our love for privacy, 
and freedom and autonomy to help us be ashamed of Jesus Christ and his words? The answer to the question of what does it profit us to gain everything and lose our souls must surely be absolutely nothing. And I want to protect you from that, and you should want to protect me from that. Verse 26 and 27 tell us that the Son of Man will evaluate our lives when He comes. If we are ashamed of Him here, when He comes to see us, He will be ashamed of us when He returns in power. The Lord Jesus here refers to the future events of the Christ returning in glory. And verse 27 of the text uh, has puzzled some, right? Uh, and, and, and many of us think, oh, you know, maybe verse 27, is it talking about some kind of magical preservation that takes place that some disciples won't die until the return of Jesus? Some Bible conspiracy theory? Well, actually, the verse talks about what's going to happen eight days later when Jesus reveals the glory of his kingdom in his transfiguration. And he appears with Moses and Elijah in glory, which is a foretaste of the glory that he's going to come back in that you and I are waiting for right now. The same Lord Jesus who calls his disciples to cross-shape living self-denial is the same Lord Jesus who will die, rise, ascend, and return in glory and the glory of his Father and of the holy angels. That's where you and I live between his ascension and his return. And the Christ of the cross is the Christ of the glorious return. And he will either say that you, my child, took up my cross and died for me and lived for me and so share in my crown of victory, or you were too ashamed. You were too ashamed of my cross and you lived for yourself and not for me. So you will not share in my glory. Charles Spurgeon says, There are no crown wearers in heaven who were not cross bearers here below. What crosses have you borne for the Lord Jesus? I think of an older sister in our church whom I haven't been able to see for some time and how she shared uh, once that when she came to Christ, the first in her family, uh, her parents opposed to Christianity and, and they opposed to the gospel. And that they, uh, and when she came home from, from church or from, or from worship or from Sunday school as a teenager and she came home, her parents wouldn't let her sit at the dining table and they would banish her to the kitchen to eat alone. And she would sit on the kitchen floor and, and, and her mother disowned her effectively. Friends, there are many stories of this. Uh, in our church, of Christians bearing up the cross as they follow in the Lord of the cross. And what crosses have we borne? How we would enrich our fellowship and enrich our time together if we spoke of these crosses, knowing that this side of heaven, while they may hurt and they may be painful, what a joy it will be when the Lord comes and says, I know all that you've done. I know all you've given up for my sake, and you will not be in any way shortchanged by the Lord of the cross. Beckett Cook is a successful Hollywood set designer and fashion professional who lives in Los Angeles and has worked with celebrities like Natalie Portman and Drew Barrymore, and he's written a book 
about how he came to Christ, which I'm really enjoying. The title of the book uh, in my slide right here is called A Change of Affections, A Gay Man's Incredible Story of Redemption. And Cook describes how he went from being a very satisfied uh, man in California, politically and personally hating and opposing the gospel, to becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. And in his book, Cook explains that what changed everything for him was meeting Jesus. Just like Peter and the disciples did. Cook was at a coffee shop in Los Angeles and he was seated near a group of young people and he noticed that they had uh, Bibles open and they were studying the book of Romans. And in a very, very strange encounter, he walked up to them and he started asking them, you know, what are you guys doing? I mean, uh, I've got a whole bunch of questions about Christianity. I used to go to church at one point, but I don't understand this and this and this and this. And he was impressed by how, how thoughtful they were and how insightful they were. And so they made contact. He was invited to their church. And then he just kept going. He just kept going as uh, one of his church friends invited him to read the Bible, exploring who Jesus is, what he says and what he's like. And eventually... He turned of his sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. But being a Christian for Cook in Hollywood has been costly. As he's discovered that taking up his cross and dying to self also means putting aside his dreams for life as a successful, well-respected Hollywood professional and also as a gay man in a committed, loving relationship. Following Jesus meant he put that down. And of this, Cook writes, I have to say that after my encounter with Jesus by the grace of God, that desire has greatly diminished. I am content simply to be obedient to him. I am more than willing to deny myself, take up my cross and follow him. He is worth it. Brothers and sisters, come and look at the cross of Christ. What is Jesus calling you now to nail there so that we might follow him and know the superior joy of his affection? Is there a secret sin that no one knows about that needs to die? Or a long-held judgment of someone who always gets you annoyed that needs to die or a stubborn refusal to share your life with others or maybe it's temper and a sharp tongue or a love of freedom and comfort friends all that is not of Christ let us nail it to the cross Jesus I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee. Let's pray together. Our Father, we give you thanks and praise that you would reveal to us the great mystery of the cross. There we learn who the Christ truly is, the one who gave his life for our sins to satisfy God's wrath for our rebellion. 
And there, O oh God, you bought us back for yourself and show the glory of the Son of Man who is now enthroned on high. Lord, this is the promise that you have for us, that this same glorious Lord will look upon our lives and call us to account and will not miss out any of the crosses that we've borne for his sake. And so, Lord, as we endeavor to keep this cross of Jesus central in our lives, we ask for your help. Help us to see that in eternity, we will be singing of the wonders of the cross. And so cultivate our appetite and our affection for the glory of our crucified Savior. And now, by His strength and power, help us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.